Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. A, a series that we've been doing for a while now where we're looking at Jesus, just kind of purely at Jesus, um, seeing him maybe in new ways, kind of looking at what he came to do, what he came to say, uh, what he came to bring, and, and how that really over these last couple of weeks as we've been looking at Jesus, we've been seeing that he actually came to bring something to the world that was brand new. And when we say that it was brand new, what we mean is that the people that he showed up to 2,000 years ago, and he showed up to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel, they, they had never seen what he was talking about. They had never seen what he was doing, but they had heard about it before. And it, it, what he had brought them was an ancient promise, even for an ancient people. And, you know, we're 2,000 years removed from Jesus. They were about 2,000 years removed from some of the first uh, writings of this promise to them. But it was something brand new. And when he showed up to the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago, I mean, they were a tired nation. They were a broken nation. They were under oppression to Rome. And they were kind of stuck on this, this hamster wheel of existence you know, where things would be good between them and God for a while, and, and then they would break their covenant with God, and so they would, you know, God would kind of take his protection off, and they'd get stuck, and they, they had kind of, you know, been on this hamster wheel really so long that they had really lost their reason for existing, the very reason that they had been made from a family into a nation, and so at the point Jesus showed up, they really needed something brand new, and Jesus, when he showed up, was telling them, hey, the new promise that you've been waiting for, it's finally here. It's on the scene. It is coming true in me. But they missed it. They missed it. And, it, and we talked last week, if we're not careful, we can miss what Jesus came to accomplish also. There are a lot of you know, things said about Jesus, that he was a good teacher, or he was a good moral example, you know, or maybe you've even gone a step further and said, well, Jesus you know, came to forgive me of my sins, right, of the injustices that I have committed. But Jesus actually came to put us and the creator back together in a brand new way, a way that nobody had ever seen before, a way that wouldn't just forgive us of our sins, but a way that would actually save us from our sins, it would actually save us from the things in us that hurt others and that push away our creator. He came not to just forgive, but to save us from our sins. And, and he, gave, he came to give us a new purpose. Once we live in this new reality, once we see these new beginnings like what we've seen today, we know that we can have new purpose with Jesus. And it's something that fills up our life with meaning. And it's something so beautiful and so full that it, it doesn't just fill up this life with meaning, meaning, but it actually gives us the kind of life, the quality of life that is worth lasting forever and ever and ever. And Jesus called that eternal life. I've come to give you eternal life. And so as we looked, you know, as I kind of began to put together my notes today for, for talking about, you know, th this new thing that Jesus came to do, I was trying to think of how to put it in and marriage came to mind. Anybody remember when it was time for you to get married? Like anybody remember the circumstances, you know, if you've been married, anybody remember the circumstances around getting married, right? All of the nervousness and the, the fear and the excitement and all that kind of stuff. And I know for myself, I'll never forget you know, when Chelsea asked me to marry her and uh, it's just, you know, I was like, I was like, girl, get up off your knee. You ain't got to do all that, you know, but, but, you know, she asked and I, I said, yes. And, you know, then we eloped, we ran off 
we actually ran off to Tahoe. It was actually kind of funny. And, you know, we're up there getting married. And the officiant, you know, with apologies to any car salesman in the room, the officiant looked kind of like a used car salesman. Um, we're up there trying to be serious, getting married. And it looked like the guy had no molars. It looked like it was all front teeth. His whole mouth was front teeth. It was, just, you know, and so we're up there trying to get married and then we're trying to say our vows to each other, right? And vows are obviously the whole reason that you have the marriage ceremony. But if you ever thought about vows and, and really vows should scare you to death because there is no if in vows. Like you're promising this person, I promise to, and then you go down this list, right? I promise to be this, do this, you know, all this kind of stuff. And there's no, as long as you will, Added on to it, right? It's kind of scary. Marriage vows don't come with an if. They're a covenant. And we don't use that word covenant too often. In our language and in our society, we kind of think of contracts. But this word covenant is used a lot in the Bible. And I, you know, a vow, a marriage vow is actually something like a covenant. It's a contract, but there's a relationship aspect to it. And in fact, when you get married, you are actually entering into what's called a promissory covenant. In other words, it's not a bilateral covenant. In other words, well, it's dependent on the other one. It's a, it's a unilateral covenant. You're saying, I will, no matter your response to what I promise you. But then it's mutually bilateral. I promise this, no matter your response, and then they promise you, no matter your response to them. And what you are saying is, I vow to keep my promise, no matter whether or not you keep yours. And the only wiggle room we put in vows is what? Till death do us part. Until you make me so mad that, no, I'm just kidding. Like, don't go there. But it's till death do us part. And then we know kind of about the whole, you know, infidelity thing. And that kind of, you know, puts wrinkles in it. But just when it comes time to the vows, that's the only thing. You are promising that that is the only thing that will stop you from keeping your end of the bargain. And that's a promissory covenant. Promissory covenants have no if. There's no as long as. But here's the thing. When we look at that and when we hear that, isn't that really the ideal? Like someone loving you unconditionally? Like isn't that really what we all hope to find? Someone that is gonna love me unconditionally? That is the stuff that fairy tales and legends and chick flicks are made of, right? Unconditional love. And we celebrate, don't we? We celebrate old couples, right? Been married for 50 years and we clap our hands and we think, how in the world did you not kill each other? You know, like that's, it's a long time to be together. Or, you know, here where we are close to Travis Air Force Base, we honor and we should honor and we should, you know, clap maybe for our military spouses. Can we go ahead and do that, right? I mean... Somebody on the in the military goes on like a year-long deployment and the other spouse stays home, right? And I mean, they're, they're just, they're killing it. They're on their grind. I mean, taking care of kids and, and home and managing all the finances and everything, but they stay there. Even though at that time, they're getting really nothing in return. They have made a vow. They have made a promissory covenant with someone. Or then, you know, even, and the, these things always get us, right? They hit us right in the feels. I mean, when you see someone, maybe a spouse that has been disabled, 
right? A spouse that is, you know, has a terminal illness or so. You might remember, you know, the original Superman a few years ago, Christopher Reeve, and how he got in that accident and became, you know, a quadriplegic because of his accident. And then his wife, Dana Reeve, just left all of her career. She was a successful, beautiful actress. She left everything to be with him. And we look at that and we say, man, that is awesome. That is so beautiful that she stayed with him all the way till the end. And when we look at that, that's the ideal, isn't it? That's what we want, isn't it? Like when we see that, we think that's what real love looks like, I think. It's not temporary and it's not transient, but it is promissory. It's one-sided. It is unilateral. It, was, it is, I will do for you even if you don't or can't do for me. That's what we want. That's what we want. There, now, in ancient times and in Bible times and really kind of even in our modern day, you know, society and everything, there's really three types of covenants, the, you know, things between people, agreements between people. There are conditional covenants between equals, and we kind of know about this, right? Two people agree on something, you shake hands. Back in the day, they used to cut their palms and mingle blood, you know, or they spit on their palm, right, and do that. Now we do that as a joke, but they used to do that as part of their commitment, you know, and they'd agree. And as long as both people kept their side of the bargain, then the covenant still stood. And then if somebody messed up, then you had to go appeal to a higher authority and kind of get it resolved. Or then we know about conditional covenants between non-equals, right? And this might be like a king to a vassal. And we don't really kind of, you know, what, what in the world's a vassal? But back in the day, there were kings and vassals. If you will produce for my kingdom, if you will provide for my kingdom, then I promise to give you protection, give you safety, and I will give you status as a citizen within my kingdom. If you will, then I will. If you do, as long as you do, then I will do for you. And so that was like a king to a vassal, or we might say a government to a citizen, or from the Bible times, when we look at the nation of Israel, a God to a nation. God made this second type of covenant with the nation of Israel. A conditional covenant between non-equals. If you will, then I will. God pulled Israel out of Egypt and he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And, and that was on their first Passover. And, and he was going to turn to, you know, at that point, they weren't really a nation yet. They were just this really, really big family. And they, you know, gotten into the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. And this, this family was, was a slave family. They had been enslaved by Egypt. God rescued them on the first Passover. And then he gave them a covenant to turn them into a nation. He said, I'll be your God, you be my nation, you be my people. And they had never been a nation before. They had no constitution, they had no laws, they had no military, no education system, no civil government. It's hard enough to start a business. Can you imagine trying to start a nation? Can you imagine trying to start a nation when you're already the population size of a nation? That would have been a headache. And so God made a conditional covenant between non-equals. And it was a beautiful covenant. He gave them these laws and he said, I'm gonna give you the framework to be a nation. And it's gonna have all of your civil law and all of your criminal law in it. And, and it's gonna cover debt. And God had this brilliant system of debt where if you got into debt, every seven years, everybody's debt was erased. Can I hear an amen, somebody? I thought people would be running the aisles on that one. I just... He, if you had to sell property to take care of some of your debt, and you had to actually, back in those days, you didn't just get to declare bankruptcy. You would actually become a servant or a slave to the person that you owed. He said, after seven years, that's going to be canceled, and your land will be restored to you. 
so that there was no multi-generational poverty. There were always new beginnings. God was brilliant. And the farmers and the the crop producers would not be able to, to glean from the edges of their crops or their orchards so that the poor would always have access to food. And his law settled disputes and it provided for peace. And it was just a beautiful covenant, a beautiful framework that God gave to them. And from about Exodus 20 in your Bible, in the old part of your Bible, that's where you see the Ten Commandments. You ever heard of the Ten Commandments? They were part of this conditional covenant between non-equals. And from about Exodus 20 all the way through Deuteronomy, which is a fun word to say, there was all the terms and conditions of God's covenant with Israel. Uh, these were the covenant conditions, but listen to this. These were the terms and conditions of a covenant not with individuals, but with a nation. This was not a covenant made with people. It was made with a people. And that's why some people start reading the Bible and they start at the beginning, right? Because I mean, that's where you start with a book and they get to you know, Exodus 20 and they get through all these rules and they start reading. They're thinking, man, this is so confusing. And why would God do this? And if I got to do all this stuff to be a Christian, well, forget it. you know. And I have some good news for you. That wasn't meant for you. That was a covenant that God made to make a family become a nation. And in fact, you can't even get in on that covenant anymore. It's been closed out. And we're going to look at that in just a second. But God gave them this this conditional covenant. And he gave them all the fine print from Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy. And he told them, as long as you keep my laws, I'll keep you safe. If you will obey my commandments, then I will protect you. If you will, then I will. But if you don't, then I won't. It was a conditional covenant. But you've got to remember, and Israel had forgotten that that little covenant was actually not the only covenant God had made. That God, the creator God, had actually made a larger covenant with all of creation, all of his wonderful creation that was made in his image, but that had fallen away from relationship with him. God had made a bigger covenant with a bigger group of people. And we kind of talked about that last week, that God was on a mission to rescue his broken creation. And what God had done was chosen the family of Abraham, which became the nation of Israel, to use them as the rescue tool for the rest of creation. So this covenant that he made with Israel was not the main covenant. It was a side covenant that God had to do to make them into the kind of people that he would use to accomplish his much bigger covenant with all of creation. It wasn't that God chose Israel and said, forget everybody else. It was that God had chosen Israel in order to use them to reach everybody else. Can I hear a thank you from some more than just on this side? There we go. Thank you, Jesus. So it was a secondary covenant that he made with one people so that he could use them to rescue all the other people. But what happened is Israel got kind of self-absorbed. And we can point fingers at them if they want, but we know that we do the same thing sometimes, right? And they forgot that they were part of a much larger purpose. They forgot the reason that they had been made the nation of Israel. And so their their history, their national history, became this hamster wheel of, of blessing, living under God's commandments, and then breaking God's commandments. And so God said, well, if you don't, then I won't. And he stopped protecting them. And he'd tell them, I'm going to put you on time out. And sure enough, they wouldn't you know, shape up. And so they'd get beat down by somebody, carried off by somebody, enslaved by somebody. And so they'd cry out, God, we want back in the covenant. God, remember your promise. And so he'd rescue them and things were good. And then they'd just go on again, 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 wash, rinse, repeat. 
the same cycle over and over. And the whole rest of the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, after you get past the fine print of their, their contract, all the way through Malachi, it's the story of Israel and their hamster wheel of existence. Up and down and back around. And God would send these preachers to them and God would send these prophets to them and tell them, hey, you guys better shape up. You guys can't forget your mission. You can't forget that God's trying to win the rest of the world through you. They used to call it, they used to tell them at one point, you, this house of God, this temple where you worship your God, is supposed to be a house of prayer for the, all, all the nations. But everybody around you and all the other nations hate you because of the way you guys act. And they don't want anything to do with your God or this rescue mission. So shape up or God's gonna put you on time out. And all the parents in the room know what that's about, right? And one time they were so bad that God put them on time out for 70 years in Babylon and then finally brought them back. But just like us and our kids, you put them on time out, but that doesn't mean you don't love them. It means you do love them. Putting them on time out is actually a sign that you're trying to help them and make them into a productive and responsible citizen of society. So he kept reminding them of the new covenant. Hey guys, one day there's going to be a new covenant. You guys, you can't forget about the larger thing that I am trying to do, that God was going to make them a promissory covenant, a unilateral covenant that God had promised all creation. And because Israel was part of creation, God had promised Israel, I am going to make, and I will, even if you don't covenant with you, and with all the rest of the world and the covenant that God wanted to give to Israel and wants to give to each and every one of us. You ready? Cue the violins, cue the romantic music. It is a love story covenant. A covenant where God would be for people even when people were against God. A covenant where God would love those who were thinking and behaving in ways that proved that they did not love God in return. Anybody ever have a middle school crush? Anybody ever had a crush when you were younger? And you, Stephanie on Dustin, that was there. And, and, you know, Stephanie, you love Dustin. You know, you had pictures of him all over your room, creepy pictures where you cut out his eyes. And No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, you, you love this person. And, I mean, you try and share your lunch with them. You try and do favors for them. But, you know, they're just not into you. Anybody ever been there before? I've heard about it. But anyway, uh, you know, you just, you, you have these, this, this cry, and you want to be with them, but they're just not really have, but you, you're still crushing on them. You can't get over them. God was crushing. Thank God. God was crushing on his creation. God is still crushing on you. And he was crushing on Israel. And so God, through a preacher named Jeremiah, reminded them of their covenant, this promise that he gave to them. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new, everybody say new covenant, with the people of Israel. And now watch this, watch this. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. That was a conditional covenant between non-equals. This is not going to be like that kind of covenant. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke that covenant. And when they broke that covenant, they were breaking my heart. I wanted something with them that I never got out of that, that covenant. That old covenant never made, me, made them love me back. I was nothing more than a protector to Israel. I was nothing more than a who they called when they got in trouble 
kind of relationship with Israel. And I wanted it to be a love relationship. But all they wanted me for was to make life easy and make life good for them. Now, come on, somebody. If we're honest and you ain't got to raise your hand, but don't we all think of God that way sometimes? Like, I'm just going to do life my way. And then when I get in trouble, oh, Jesus. And then we start making those conditional covenants with him, right? God, if you will, then I promise I will. Next Sunday. God, if you will, then I promise I won't ever again. Then stuff happens and we just kind of forget about it. So God said, this is not what I want. And so I'm going to make a new covenant and things are going to be different. Well, how, God? How are things going to be different? And he said, I will put my law in their minds. I'm not going to give them a 30 pages of fine print in size six font. I'm going to put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I'm going to open their minds up to new ways of thinking. I'm going to change their hearts so that what they love will be different and how they love what they love will be different. And do you see what God is promising to do? He's promising to put an idea in people's minds that they have never considered before. Something brand new. He is promising to show people how to love like they have never loved before. But how in the world was God going to do this? This came hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. When was God going to give people new thoughts about power and new thoughts about justice and new thoughts about mercy? How was God going to show us new ways of being human and treating each other? New ways of living in relationship with him. Just how was God going to teach us to love others like we have never loved others before? How was it going to happen? When was it going to happen, Israel wondered? And maybe what would it look like? Or who would it look like? Or what would God look like when he finally showed up to bring us the new covenant? And I love this. You know, we're, we, you know God, if you're going to do this for us, you know, what, what's it going to look like? And he says, no longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, the God of all creation, the infinite wisdom and infinite power an infinite love of an infinite God. He is going to allow me to know him and in my getting to know him, it's gonna change my mind and change my heart. How, God, how are you going to do that? What's that going to look like? And he finishes with this, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And yeah, come on, give God thanks and praise for that. That's beautiful. But when it comes to this unilateral covenant, when it comes to this promissory kind of covenant, don't you need some forgiving and forgetting? Right? To make a good marriage last, to get to 50 years, don't you need a little forgiving and forgetting, a determination to get past the failures of each other? Yeah, a lot of it. Not a little bit, a lot of it. None of us have been perfect partners in any relationship. And if a relationship is going to be promissory, I will, even if you don't, it has to have forgiveness and it has to have forgetting. And God says, I'm gonna make a far better covenant than what you have as a nation. 
I'm gonna take away the conditions and it's going to be all of me for each one of you. All of me, not just for all of you together, but all of myself, all of my love, all of my mercy, all of my kindness for each and every one of you. And you're all going to know me from the least to the greatest, poorest to the richest, lowest to the highest. Thank you, Jesus. It was always about relationship with God, always. Now, here's the thing. Early Christians knew this, but I think Christians sometimes forget this. Did you know even your Bible is divided over these two covenants, an old covenant and a new covenant? See, in your Bible, it's called the Old Testament and New Testament, but that word testament is just another word for the word covenant. The old covenant and the new covenant. It's not the really old part of the Bible and then a slightly newer part. It's divided on these two covenants. And there was a writer under the, new te- under the new covenant that actually picked up on Jeremiah's writing. And he said, yeah, Jeremiah was right. And if Israel had gotten on board with what God was trying to do, there wouldn't have been any reason for a new covenant, but they couldn't keep up what God wanted that covenant to accomplish. And so God had to promise this new covenant. And in Hebrews chapter eight, he actually quotes Jeremiah 31. And then he gets to the end of the chapter eight in verse 13 and he says this, by calling this covenant new, He has made the first one obsolete. That first covenant is obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now, who in here besides Carl Van Loo still uses their first flip phone? (laughs) Nobody. Sorry, Carl, to throw you under the bus. Nobody uses their first flip phone. Why? (laughs) It's obsolete. It's outdated. There's no power to it anymore. It doesn't work for you anymore. Maybe it's in a drawer somewhere, but probably it has disappeared. And now you use something way better than what you had before. Now you use something and you enjoy something better than what you had the first time. So Jesus knew all of this. Jesus knew that this was supposed to come to Israel and not just Israel, but really to all the rest of the world. In fact, that's what Jesus came to do and in what he performed for people and how he healed people and how he fed people and how he seemed to forgive people away from the temple, away from the normal system of having your sins forgiven. He was saying, I have come to replace what is obsolete. I have come to replace a covenant that is outdated and it very soon is going to disappear. He came to give us something way better than what they had before, something brand new. But see, to the nation of Israel, to a people so entrenched in a collective identity, it was hard for them to believe that they should leave that identity for a new one. I mean, they'd been taught their national identity from childhood. It was in their festivals and their customs and their rituals. And when Jesus came on the scene, honestly, they just wanted Jesus to kind of do a makeover on the old covenant. Just, just free us from Rome, Jesus, you know, like you did for our ancestors. Just make us physically free, but don't remind us about the fact that we keep messing it up once you free us. We just want you to kind of do what we've always had done. Just free us from physical 
slavery and oppression, but Jesus had done, come to do something so much better. And he was here to tell them and he is here to tell us that it is time to leave the covenant that shaped you as a people. And it, instead, it is time to join the covenant that can change the minds and the hearts of each and every person. It is no longer a national thing that God wants to do. It is a personal thing. It is no longer a corporate thing that God is doing. It is an individual thing. And it's from the least to the greatest, from the poorest to the richest, Democrats, Republicans, black, white. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you live in. I don't care about your past. God has come to do something new. And it's way better than anything you've ever thought about before. It was no longer a conditional covenant with a nation. Now it was an unconditional and undeserved promises, unmerited rescue that Jesus was showing to prostitutes. What's he doing? Tax collectors, people that were betraying their own countrymen. Jesus is offering them to join his crew. To the poor, to the sick, to the diseased and the marginalized, to widows and to orphans to sinners like you and sinners like me. Jesus came to give us undeserved mercy and love. Oh, come on, lift up your voices a little bit louder and clap your hands a little bit longer for what Jesus came to do. It's unconditional. Do you know that Christianity is the only religion where the deity loves people that aren't yet part of the religion? Why? Because the new thing is unconditional. I will, even if you don't. I will, even if you have not yet. And that is the best kind of news. That is why it's called the gospel. That word gospel means good news. It's like a news announcement. It's the best kind of news that the God of all creation, the one that, that knows my story and knows the parts of my story that I hope nobody else ever finds out about, the God of all creation who has seen me at my best but far too often seen me act out my worst has come to offer me a relationship. But it can't be based on that broken version of myself. And in fact, it promises to rescue me and to save me from that broken version of myself. And that's what Jesus was talking about. And then towards the end of his public ministry, he goes to Jerusalem for the last time and he's gonna celebrate Passover, which was a national thing. And Mark, who interviewed some of his closest followers, tell us what it tells us what happened next in Mark 14, one says, now the Passover, again, this was a Jewish festival, a national festival. It signified their old covenant, the beginning of their old covenant. Jesus chose Passover on purpose. He was so smart. There are so many layers of meaning and depth in what Jesus did. And he chose Passover to go and as the timing for when he would introduce something new. Now the Passover was only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, or maybe we might call them this, the representatives of the old covenant were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and have him killed. 
The representatives of the old covenant knew what Jesus was doing. He's making our covenant outdated and obsolete. We can see what he's trying to do. He's offering forgiveness of sins away from our temple. He is telling people that they can ignore the authority that we get from our covenant. He's promising people freedom from oppression, but we can't really tell if he's talking about Rome or something deeper, something personal. And the thing is, he's getting so popular that we need to put an end to this, but we're worried. And so they said, we're not gonna arrest him during the festival or the people might riot. The way that he's healing them, the way that he's feeding them, the way that he's forgiving their sins and giving them new beginnings, we gotta make sure we do it when he's alone. And John picks up the story from Mark in John 12, and he says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. There were tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of pilgrims that were flocking to Jerusalem because this, this Passover festival was like their national 4th of July. That's what it was for Israel. And so the roads into Jerusalem and through the gates of the city were just packed. I mean, it was donkey to donkey to donkey. I mean, you know, kids sitting on the back saying, mom, are we there yet? Mom, are we there yet? Right? All that stuff that happens and hotels are all full. The gas prices are just through the roof. It's ridiculous. And, and then somebody tweets out on social media, hey, I saw Jesus out on the Eastern Road. Hashtag kicking it with the king. <laughs> that was corny. I know that was corny. But this great swell of people in a crowd of tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of people flocked to where Jesus was. And they took palm branches, a sign of royalty, and they went out to meet Jesus. Why? Because it was Passover time. And we've been waiting for our rescuer king to rescue our nation. We're not really thinking about new covenant. We're still thinking old covenant. We're not thinking about us individually. We just want God to make things better for our nation and our country. And Passover time is when historically God has put judgment on our oppressors and set us free. And so maybe Jesus is the guy. Let's take palm branches out there. And they go out and they begin shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And we think Hosanna is, I think in my mind anyway, Hosanna was a phrase of like praise or worship, but it was actually, if you look at where it's used in Psalm, in Psalm 118 and verse 25, it was actually a cry that literally meant, save me, save us. And so they come out to Jesus who might be their rescuer king and they're shouting out, save us, Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But, but they weren't thinking individually. They weren't thinking you know, for themselves. They were still thinking as a nation. And so they said, blessed is the king of Israel. Of Israel. They're still thinking old covenant. They're still thinking national covenant, but Jesus had come to give them something so much better. Jesus had come to Jerusalem at Passover, not just to give them, but to give each and every one of us something we did not earn and something we do not deserve. And God was about to do something new for every person that has ever drawn breath on this planet, even though none of us have ever done anything for him. Brand new, brand new. 
So Jesus has got to get away from the crowd. So he sends his followers to prepare a room to celebrate the Passover meal and you know, away from prying eyes and away from prying ears because he's got a lot to say to them. And the leaders of the old covenant still want him gone. But how are they going to do it when the crowd's around? And so if you grew up around church, you know the story that Judas, one of Jesus' closest followers, breaks rank with Jesus. And he's frustrated because Jesus is not you know, bringing about the old covenant He wants Jesus to rise to the traditional kind of kingship so that Jesus can win the traditional kind of war against the traditional kind of enemy and send Israel back on their traditional kind of national path. And so he goes and he's just done with Jesus. And so he works out a deal to betray Jesus and to tell them when they can arrest him, when Jesus will be most isolated from the crowds. But meanwhile, Luke tells us that Jesus is finally alone with his other followers and he's got a lot to say to them. And he's been hinting and hinting and hinting at the new thing that God was doing through him. And Luke 22 and verses 14 and 15 says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This Passover. We've celebrated a lot of other Passovers. Every year since we were little kids, we've celebrated Passover. But this Passover It's going to be different. Traditionally, Passover celebrates our national history. But this Passover is going to be all about the future of every single person. Jew and Gentile alike. And they don't get it. And they're thinking, why in the world is he talking about suffering? Jesus, did you see the crowds today? Jesus, did you hear the crowds today crying out, save us? saying that you could be the king of the nation. Jesus, did you? I saw a guy body surfing. Like there was, Jesus, did you see what was going? Why are you talking about suffering? This is maybe the greatest day of our movement. What do you mean you're gonna suffer? And they didn't understand what Jesus had come to do. And he took the bread from the meal and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Jesus, you're going to suffer. Jesus, this, this bread is supposed to symbolize your body. It's given for us. Get given to whom? Like what in the world? This bread and the lamb that we're eating in this whole meal, this represents the Passover lamb, Jesus. This represents the first Passover when we were first given a covenant as a nation. This represents when the judgment on evil was coming down and because of this meal, the judgment on evil passed over us. What are you doing trying to make it about you? And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, that's not how it works. We do this in celebration of our national beginning. You're trying to change our national celebration. And listen, church, it's so important that we remember this. We read all of these stories on this side of the cross. We know that Jesus is about to get arrested and crucified and executed. But they, at this moment, they didn't understand. Jesus, this is our good day, a very, very good day. We are so excited about what's going on and the movement and the buzz going on in the streets and then you're coming in here and being all depressing, you know, talking about this strange ending to everything and it's your body and suffering. And, but they were only thinking of Israel. They were only thinking of a national identity and a national kingship, but Jesus was thinking of the moment that he would be crowned the king, not just of a nation, but the king of everything. Everything. 
And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is. And I imagine they wanted to just jump in. Jesus, you don't have to tell us what this cup is. We know what this cup is. We've celebrated this tradition since we were kids. Our dads and our granddads told us all the symbolism of all the different components of the meal. And and this cup, this wine, it represents the blood of that lamb. You know, that blood that we took outside and as a symbol of our trust in God, we painted the blood over our doorpost so that when the judgment on evil came to Egypt, wherever that death angel saw this symbol of blood over the home, it would pass over. We were able to escape the judgment of evil. That's how we left Egypt. That's how we first began to be a nation, Jesus. Without the blood in this cup, we wouldn't be a nation. There would be no old covenant. We know what this cup represents. And Jesus changes everything. This cup is the new covenant. Notice he does not say a new covenant. He says this cup is the new covenant. You are tired as a nation. You are broken as a nation. Your traditional understandings of God and religion and how it all works has left you empty and without purpose. But there has been a promise for centuries. There has been a covenant waiting in the wings for centuries, not with a nation, but with every person. But this new covenant, it's so much better than the old one. You don't have to memorize terms and conditions with a new covenant. You don't have to know all the fine print and all the rules and you don't need experts to help you interpret all the rules. The new one is so much better because you won't know rules, you will know God. You won't know a list of do's and don'ts. You're gonna know the one that designed you, that knit you together, that planned your life from beginning to end, who has numbered your days and no... Come on, somebody. Have you ever drifted through life and wondered what it was all about? The reason that we wonder and the reason that we're adrift is because we don't know our designer. It's because we're not in relationship with our maker. But there is a covenant that is offered to us that we can know God. Jesus was about to open their minds to new ways of thinking. Jesus was about to open their hearts to a brand new definition of love. Unlike any definition of love the world had ever seen. And his demonstration, he promised, would so change our thinking and so change our hearts that it would almost be like what we talked about last week. It would almost be as if we are reborn. Born again with new ways of thinking and new ways of loving. Jesus says this cup represents the new covenant, the new relationship with the creator. When you've cried out, Hosanna, save us, he has heard you and it is here. It's now and it's new covenant that is in my blood, which is poured out for you. The old covenant was if you will, then I will. But this new one, it's I'm about to, even if you never. That I am about to give my body. I am about to spill my life's blood. And some of you sitting at this table may not ever accept it. I'm about to spill my blood. And it's for you, James, he would have said. It's for you, Peter and John and Andrew. 
And if he was here today, he would point to each and every one of us and he would say, it's for you. It's for you. It's my blood that I'm about to pour out for you. You and you and you. These. You and you and you. Even though you may not accept it, and even though you may push it, push me away. And Matthew, as he's telling this version of the story, he reaches back to that prophecy from Jeremiah and he adds a line, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus was telling them and Jesus is telling us and Jesus is telling every person that has ever drawn breath on the planet that the judgment for your sins and the judgment for your injustices can fall on me so that you can be free. It's all going to come on me so that you can be freed. And don't we know, I mean, he, you know, the Jews wanted physical freedom from captivity. But don't we know that you can be free from physical captivity but still be captive to thinking and behaviors within ourselves that steal the joy from our lives, right? That rob us of the hope that our future will be any different than it was yesterday. That there are things in us, there are ways we think and ways we feel about things that, that destroy our relationships. They break down our homes and they mess up careers, mess up finances even. There are things inside ourselves that keep us distant from God and keep us running away from God. Because just like the caretakers of the old covenant, we're so scared that God's gonna come take something away when really Jesus just came to replace those broken things in us with something so much better. You don't have to be afraid. You can trust someone that laid down his life for you, for you, and you, and you. Come on, can you lift up your hands and tell them thank you this morning? Can you close your eyes and tell them thank you this morning all over this room? And though his followers didn't understand it and though they couldn't really stand it, though his followers ran away and left Jesus all alone, Jesus was arrested that night. He was accused of things that weren't true and suffered a travesty of justice, pronounced guilty though he was innocent and those Roman soldiers took him they drove nails through his hands. They drove nails through his feet. And they pinned him to a cross. And he was lifted up and suspended between heaven and earth. And the judgment for every sin, the judgment for every injustice that we have ever done or committed against somebody else was poured out on the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins, not just of a nation, but of the whole the whole world. And his blood ran from his body and was poured out as the symbol of a new covenant, a better covenant, a new and better way to be in relationship with God, a new answer to the cry that each and every one of us have probably had at different moments in our life where we didn't know what else to do when we closed our eyes and we just said, God, will you please? What we were saying in those moments is, Hosanna. Save us, save us. That's what Jesus came to do.
That's what we've seen today. This is what we've witnessed. People coming in to the new covenant. People saying, yes, Jesus, I want in to this new and better thing. And you, you may not know fancy words to pray. You may not know fancy words to say, but that's what's so beautiful about the new covenant. You don't have to. You don't have to know words and rules and laws. You get to know God. You know, all you have to do is offer him your mind and your heart and let it make you brand new from the least to the greatest, poorest to the richest, each and every one, each and every one, something brand new in Jesus. Can we all stand this morning? You guys remember, uh, you guys remember do you like me notes in school? You guys remember, you know, do you like me? Check yes or no. We, uh, I grew up in San Jose. We went to the church in San Jose and we came here when I was nine. So this is like when I was six, seven, eight years old. But for whatever reason in San Jose, that was a thing. You know, all the boys would send notes to the girls. Do you like me? Check yes or check no. And if they checked yes, then I don't know why this was the thing, but this was the thing. After church, you'd go and you'd hold hands with each other and stand awkwardly off to the side. And all the other kids ran around playing, but they checked yes. So you got to hold hands until you got tired of holding hands. And then you'd have to put back a no, you know, like, okay, it's over. <laughs> the ups and downs of romance. And I can remember the day that I sent C. Bonet a note. You remember that mom, C. Bonet? You remember C. Bonet back then? And I don't know, I, I, I imagine C. Bonet has grown up, married, and everything else. I doubt she knows, remembers anything. But I can remember sending C. Bonet a note. Do you like me? Check yes or no. And honestly, at the time, I was so nervous because, like, you send those notes, and they're like, you're, you're, like, sick to your stomach, right? It's like butterflies. And I was so nervous. But I was actually more nervous that she would check yes because I had warts. So like, you know, if she found out I had warts and then checked no again after that and then told all the other kids I was going to be Warty McWart face or something like that. I just, my parents already named me Enoch. That's my middle name. And the kids already would just punch me on the head and say, knock, 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 knock. So now they would call me Warty, knock, Warty, somebody, I don't know. But I was so nervous. But, you know, I had to send the note. Still had to make a move because that's what seven-year-old players do. So I sent C. Bonet the note, and I'm not going to tell you what she said because a gentleman doesn't hold hands and tell. So <laughs> sent that note, and there's that nervous anticipation. You're grinning ear to ear, and you're scared, and there's butterflies because you're crushing on this person. And God is crushing on you. He loves you so much. You don't even understand how much he loves you. How in Jesus, he has sent the ultimate love note into the world to tell you, I have done something for you. Even if you never reciprocate, even if you never do anything back for me, it's an unconditional and it's a new kind of covenant and it's so much better. I don't know what you've thought of me before. I don't know, let me say this this way. I don't know if you're here this morning, I don't know what your experience with God or church or religion has been with and been in the past, but maybe you kind of thought of that old covenant, 
Maybe you were thinking of the old way. Like, well, I have to so that God will. But Jesus came to say something so much better to you that he has, even though you have not, he has feelings for you. He has shown in Jesus Christ his thoughts over you, that his heart is broken for you and he wants to be restored. And he's wanted it since the very beginning of time. He wants you. He wants you. He wants you. Ephesians 1 and 4. Even before he made the world, God loved us. He chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He forgets our sins because that's what you need in a promissory kind of relationship. That's what you need in the new covenant. He loves you. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.